Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Many questions surrounding oil production, shipping within and without Canada. Questions about the pipeline shortfall. Is there any real interest in eventually constructing pipelines that we require? Are awfully large political decisions being made responsibly? I spoke with Dan McTague, Senior Policy Analyst at GusBuddy.com. On Wednesday of next week, recreational use of marijuana becomes legal across Canada. There are hurdles and uncertainty and lack of readiness, we know that. But how satisfied is our guest with the readiness for legalized cannabis in this country? I asked that question of longtime cannabis activist Jody Emery. Former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's new book is titled Right Here, Right Now, Politics and Leadership in the Age of Disruption. I spoke with Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief of Global News, and from the West Block. She obtained an exclusive interview with Stephen Harper for his book that will air on the West Block tomorrow morning. We return to the issue of federal legislation freeing marijuana purchases, marijuana consumption, and growing. And we turn to Canada's doctors for their views, concerns, and support. Dr. Gigi Osler is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. I spoke with her. Our good friend Dan McTague uh, kicks things off for the show today. I- I've been following Dan's Twitter account a lot, at GasBuddyDan. You really get into it with people, don't you? Well, I think it's important people uh, understand that there's always uh, more than one side of the story. Yeah, no, I like what you do. And uh, those advocating to ensure that Canada... Uh, no longer participates in producing energy. Yeah, uh, no, there, there's uh, you don't back up, you don't uh, you don't vacillate. You just you explain things as as you see them as they are in many cases, and uh, and and thank you for doing that because it's one of the most confusing issues. That's why I wanted to speak with you today to start off the show. This whole issue of our our fuel, um, you know, our, our fuel costs. Uh, the the pipelines, what the reality is as far as they uh, are concerned. We have so many mixed messages going on. Um, you know, we, we now we know that uh, the the new premier of Quebec is more than likely going to side with uh, with the premiers of Ontario, let's do it ge- geographically: Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and maybe if uh, if Jason Kenney's elected in Alberta, you'd have quite a firewall, as he said, against Justin Trudeau and his carbon tax. So, so many questions have to be answered. Why are we paying what we're paying? Why are things not happening as they should be? Dan, let me start with this. What is the most frequent question that you receive? I think the real question that I have received of late is why is uh, Canadian oil selling for under uh, $25 a barrel? And uh, in some cases, we've seen it as low as, according to some sites, as low as fifteen ninety-seven a barrel. But the real question is, how come uh, oil prices are going up? Gas, they understand gasoline prices are going up, but they don't seem to quite understand why it is that Canadian oil uh, is now selling at a third of what every, everyone else is getting. Because we only have one customer, right? Well, that's one customer, but you also have uh, built into that, and a good part of it, in, kind of in provinces like British Columbia and Quebec, some pretty substantial taxes, uh, the highest in North America, and threatening to go even higher. And I can certainly say in the case of B.C., the NDP government there and their friends in the Green Party, uh, the tick and the tail that is wagging the dog, uh, is looking to increase by another penny or two uh, the uh, price of fuel in a community, in a, in a province and in a city like Vancouver, 
which uh, right now is paying $1.63.9 per liter of gasoline. Apparently, for a lot of people, that just isn't enough. And I, I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek. It's just that some people think it should be $5 a liter. If they really don't care for them, uh, we can live in the state of nature eating acorns, and uh, we can continue to uh, destroy uh, one of the most important industries in this country. But to explain the... You know, the low price for oil isn't just about explaining, you know, one sector of the economy. It's that this particular uh, product happens to be the very product that is our number one export. It is much larger than uh, oil and gas in Canada, much larger than the automotive sector, certainly much larger than any other agricultural sector almost combined. So, you know, it's critical that when you discount your oil to such an extent, is it any wonder that, you know, the cost of living has gone up a third, government debts continue to rise, uh, people are out of work. We haven't created many full-time jobs in this country. It's all part-time. There's a growing sense of malaise, and it's not just connected, obviously, to the price of oil, but it is a symptom, a true symptom of a much larger problem in Canada. And if we don't handle our primary export, our primary industry properly, if we don't provide the world with evidence that we know what we're doing with our primary export, our primary industry, we're going to slip right off the radar if we haven't already. There, the, the level of confidence that exists in, uh, for, for, for Canada as far as investment is concerned, we know that's down. But at some point, we're just not going to be on the radar anymore at all. Well, we all share in the, in the willingness and the, the desire to ensure that the country can generate wealth, and there's nothing wrong. There should be nothing dirty about saying that we take our resources and that we sell our resources to the rest of the world that desperately wants our resources. I mean, the Americans uh, are laughing each and every day. They can buy our price our resources at fire sale levels because Canada in its in, in all of its difficulties is also a very kind and very generous country and part of that generosity has been to allow uh, you know well versed well funded foreign entities green entities to come in and use Canada as they have as they can do in no other country and zero target and use our legal system use our indi- indigenous people uh, bamboozle our politicians uh, you know, basically uh, uh, create a, a circumstance in which I can't call it anything short of brainwashing a generation of people to believe that somehow Canada is the leader uh, when it comes to climate change. It's the one that is leading to the most emissions and creating the greatest problems. Nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. But our nice approach to everything here, I think, has made us very vulnerable. And it's the very thing that is likely leading to not just economic problems, but I think it's likely to lead to political disintegration if someone in Ottawa doesn't have the smarts to wake up uh, and stop trying to play both sides of the fence here. And that, of course, is Mr. Trudeau. You uh, had an excerpt from him about uh, oil, and yet he's surrounded by people. Uh, his chief of staff to the Minister of Environment, chief of staff to the Minister of Natural Resources, which is our Minister of Energy, and his own chief of staff are all well-connected, high-ranking members of some of those, right, uh, some of those green organizations that are at the core of undermining Canada's economy. And so... The buck stops with the PM. Either he uh, either he does his what he has to do, or he moves on. Uh, but this business of sort of sitting on the fence is hurting the country, and it's certainly leading to uh, you know unintended consequences. Or perhaps in his case, they are intended. He doesn't want the oil industry to survive. If that's the case, then just tell that to Canadians. Well, look at he said it. He said it at a town hall. The oil sands must be phased out. Well, he said it. <laughs> I think there's many people in this country who are liberals like myself who believe it's much easier to phase him out. But besides the fact that you make those kind of comments, it does suggest a high degree of insincerity when it comes to the problems that we're seeing with respect to oil. 
uh, and in this energy industry. And so for that reason, Roy, I think it's it's highly alarming uh, that Canadians uh, sort of take a blasé approach to what is happening to uh, one of the most critical engines of economic growth that we have. Now, you know, as because uh, we did many interviews during that time, we may have agreed or disagreed on many things, but during the time in which the country had serious deficits and debts, one of the things that allowed the national government to escape uh, the, uh, the the debt spiral, the downward spiral, was the fact that we were generating substantial amounts of revenue. In 2009, Western Canadian Select Oil started to take off. We had pipelines, we had mm-hmm. capacity. We generated revenue and were able to pay down the debt. We became a world leader. We had all of the engines of this economy firing up, and uh, we were doing well. We suddenly allowed uh, a group of people to entrench themselves into our political and economic narrative that it's acceptable to shut the economy down by somehow saddling us with things like social license, carbon taxes, uh, just so that we get a pass from the very people who are always going to say no and, in fact, are committed to saying, bury Canada's and resources in the ground. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's their fundamental the message. Well, we also heard earlier this week from the IPCC that uh, they, they, moving goalposts now, it's now it's 1.5 degrees, that uh, you know, if we don't accomplish that in in, uh, in 12 years and the world is doomed. Don't forget in 2006, Al Gore gave us 10 years. Uh, that was 12 years ago. It was uh, 10 years or the world was going to be doomed. His uh, co-Nobel Peace Prize recipient, uh, Rajendra Pachari, from the IPCC, he was uh, one of the inventors in the 2007 massive IPCC report, one of the inventors of the story that Himalayan glaciers were going to be disappearing by 2035. They later found out that that was just a load of Toro Pupu, that there was no scientific basis for that. They had just fired it in. And guess what? The or- guess, guess which organization provided them that information? Mm. The World yeah. Wildlife Federation. Oh, which Mr. Butts Go uh, figure. Yes. Go yes. figure. Let, let me ask you this. On behalf of the consumer who's asked this question forever, is there collusion between oil companies? Because, you know, when the price goes up in station A, the price goes up in station, at station B across, uh, you know, across uh, the corner. But not only that, they seem to go up right across a city or a province or arguably across the country. So is there... Is there collusion among oil companies as far as setting the, the, the retail price is concerned? Well, I would say no, and you don't need to have that when you don't have any players left to collude with. In any given market, there's very few players. I mean, short of Edmonton and maybe Sarnia, there's no one really else. There's no four or five players that are their own refineries, their own gas stations, their own uh, distribution uh, infrastructure. Uh, they all follow each other. So if I happen to be a Shell station, uh, you know, somewhere in Ontario or a Shell group in Ontario, I might be buying my product from Esso, whereas uh, Esso might be buying from my stations out in Alberta. Okay. I mean, there's uh, there's a symbiotic relationship, and that's what happens when you have so few players left. It's something, of course, I tried to tackle as a member of Parliament in 1998. Didn't have many takers, of course, and so uh, those efforts failed. But at the end of the day, the only semblance of competition you have is among retailers, and Retailers are uh, pretty much have the same price. The wholesale price is already predetermined. Uh, uh, it's called a rack price, the posted price. It's very public, by the way. If you go Petrocan daily rack price, you'll see it there. All you have to do is add the taxes, and the rest is just retail margin. So we have a pretty serious monolith in Canada. I wouldn't call it. Uh, uh, I would certainly not call it uh, 
collusion or conspiracy. It's it's something a little bit uh, more sobering, and that's uh, a monopoly. So where are we going? I mean, where are we headed then? Where's the, just from the yeah. consumer's perspective, let's look at uh, what's ahead, and that's the next one is the mo- the winter. But in the longer term, what's going to happen? Can, do we know what's going to happen to gasoline prices in in this country? They'll Can we guess? They'll remain very high, and uh, they will remain high for uh, several reasons, government taxes uh, being one of them, but, of course, uh, weakness in the Canadian dollar. Why is that important? Well, like every other commodity, you price all of your commodities in uh, world benchmarks, and that benchmark mm-hmm. is the U.S. dollar. As I said earlier, we now take 130 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar, and that, of course, means add another 15 cents a litre to the cost of gasoline because we are no longer the petrodollar. We don't sell oil at uh, reasonable prices. So it's having an impact on groceries. It's having an impact yeah, on is. energy costs. Yeah. Take your pick. It's not just gasoline. Yeah. It's made us poor, to be sure, and it's just something that the most So, Dan, in the, minute, in the minute we have left, what's going to happen? What's your best guess? Now, I, the new Premier yeah. of Quebec is probably going to be calling, I think he's going to be calling for uh, energy east to be at least talks to be re- restarted. I really, I, I really believe that's going to happen. But where are we going? What's going to happen as far as the energy sector in this country is concerned? What's your best bet? Is it going to st- does it is it going to take a change in the federal government to make any meaningful and positive impact? Yes, I think it'll take a change at the national level to a government serious about uh, backing Canada's energy, backing its winner, because currently this government doesn't. It's simply willing to defray, put off, de- de- you know, delay, and of course spend billions of dollars on something it should never have had to commit to begin in the first okay. place. But I think in the Quebec case, you, you raise an interesting point. You know, I think the next round we'll see, uh, and there's only a guess, uh, Quebec will say yes, but we need to have a, another refinery built. Uh, let's refine more of that product that comes from the West. We want more of it. Uh, we don't have to bring in yeah, uh, yeah. our oil from you know questionable uh, regimes like Saudi Arabia, like uh, Venezuela. So we know we know we know what the triptych is. We know what the reality is. We know what the prime minister said about phasing out the oil sands. Mr. McTagg, always good talking to you. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate the time. Great to be here. Have a great weekend, Roy. You too. Add gas buddy Dan on uh, Twitter. Dan McTagg on the Roy Green Show. By the way, Bjorn Lomborg is going to be with us tomorrow. His headline in USA Today and various U.S. papers was, Don't Panic Over U.N. Climate Change Report. Now, he believes in global warming, um, but he, so the IPC's approach is going to accomplish nothing, essentially nothing, at a tremendous cost. So he'll be with us tomorrow. The legalization issue for marijuana has been going on for many decades. And I've repeated this so many times, you probably don't want to hear it again, but I do. Lenny Bruce, at a concert at Berkeley in the 1960s, said, I'd tell you marijuana is going to be legal in 10 years, and I'll tell you why. Because law students are smoking it now. So that made absolute sense. But here we are, some 50 or so years later, and four days from now, recreational consumption of marijuana becomes legal in Canada. Is this country ready? There are many questions, many challenges about, no, people saying, no, we're not ready. Just not ready on so many different fronts. And I was curious whether Jody Emery, who's been one of the two most, I think, visible um, proponents of legalizing cannabis. I don't like the term activist. It just sounds too, I don't know, I'm tired of it. But she's been one of the leading com- uh, proponents of the legalization of marijuana for years. She's been on this program on many, time, on many occasions. She's been on uh, media across this country. 
But Jody also made it possible for me to speak with her husband, Mark, while he was in prison in the United States on the marijuana conviction. So she joins us now. Jody, thank you for the time. Let me ask you this question. Will Wednesday be the huge day you perhaps anticipated over the years during which you advocated for legalized cannabis sales and recreational use? Are you, are you, do you feel like it's, it's what you wanted it to be? Well, I'm of two minds about this so-called legalization. On the one hand, the headlines on Wednesday will have an impact around the world. Most Canadians will believe that cannabis, as they've known it all this time, will finally be free from the criminal law. Unfortunately, the actual details are that federally, we are moving from eight cannabis offenses to 45 new federal cannabis offenses. Many of those punishments are increasing from seven years to 14 years. If you're a 20-year-old college student and you pass a joint to an 18-year-old college student, you can face 14 years in federal prison. So this is a significant shift in the mentality of people, but the actual details are that everything that's been illegal before will remain illegal today. I often have to ask, legalization of what and for whom? It's basically just legalizing the ability of medical marijuana growers who are on the stock market to sell to government alcohol wholesalers, and they're legalizing the ability of Canadians to have up to an ounce of government-sold cannabis. But all of the dispensaries that have existed will be illegal. All of the cannabis that we've had all these decades will remain illegal. It's called illicit cannabis now. And we're seeing upwards of almost a billion dollars being pledged federally, provincially, and locally to go after cannabis. We have new crackdown teams and drug czars. We're seeing more propaganda from the government than ever before of straight lies about cannabis. So it's not what you, it's not what you, it's certainly not what you anticipated, not what you want. I can't, I can't debate each of those points with you because frankly, I don't know. I've been reading so much that my, my eyes are glazing over, not because I smoked a joint, but just because I've been reading too much of the stuff that's come out of the nation's capital and out of the provincial capitals. Now we hear that the province of Quebec, I just want to run this by you, the province of Quebec may raise the age for legal consumption of marijuana from 18 to 20, or at least it was supposed to be 18. They're going to say it's going to be 21. There's an uneven approach across the country. I saw, uh, I'm not trying to find it, a report from businesses across Canada uh, and they're confused about what they're supposed to do and what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. There seem to be more questions than answers, uh, far, more, far more questions than answers. And uh, then there's the report I saw about Canadians driving high. That's going to be another issue. This just hasn't been handled particularly well, has it? Well, no, and it could have been so easy. The federal government years ago could have just removed cannabis from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act Cannabis is a health product, it's an industrial product, it's a food product, it's a materials, you can make clothing out of it. Cannabis is being overregulated to a prohibitive position. In fact, we're calling this the new prohibition. It's all about restricting and limiting access, tough regulations, tough punishments. It really, what, again, what are we legalizing and for whom? Because everything that's existed before will still be criminal. And as you know, in Quebec, they're changing the age. And Trudeau says, well, that's a gift to organized crime. But Mr. Prime Minister, 
your criminalization of cannabis creates the criminal market. Is this going to, Jody, is anything going to really change? Do you think I shouldn't say anything? Is there going to be a substantial change as far as where people buy their cannabis is concerned? Will there be, do you think it's going to be, uh, I'm going to go to the, for people who are buying it, I'm going to go to Joe on the street corner where I've always gotten it. And that's where I'm going to keep on going because I don't know what's happening as far as the legal end of things is concerned. Or I'm not confident. Whatever. Do you think it's going to change that dynamic significantly? Oh, no. We've had prohibition for decades. It's been illegal for decades. And look at everything that's come from that illegalization. We have the dispensaries. We have the craft growers. We have Canadian experts who make the best cannabis in the world. And all of this already exists. That's what legalize it meant. It meant legalize what already exists. Legalization should do three things. Stop criminalizing the people, stop criminalizing the industry and the plant, and stop wasting money on law enforcement. But none of those objectives are being met. And of course, we have issues of pardons and amnesty. And I am considered a big bad criminal, even though I've run for office and been a public advocate for a long time. But I am now not allowed to own legal businesses. I'm not allowed to own illegal businesses. So really, this legalization continues. But how much of that? How, how much of that did you bring on yourself? Well, in my 15 years of activism, we only did the dispensary model starting in April 2016, and so for 10 months. I did dispensaries, and the rest of it has been running for office, editing a magazine, running a head shop and lounge, going to U.S. prison, visiting my husband, who was prison there for activism, which many people forget. So, and when we say bring it upon ourselves, you don't really blame the kid on the playground who gets punched by the bully for bringing it on himself. The bully is wrong. The aggressor is wrong. I've never hurt anyone. I've only helped people. But the laws have hurt me and many other people. And cannabis legalization is a civil liberties issue. It shouldn't be about cops and politicians and big business making billions of dollars on stock market profits while the pioneers and the prohibition victims are ignored and excluded and still criminalized. It's very sad, and I'm trying to stay hopeful. And you take what you can get, and you always ask for more. But it hurts a lot to see that this new legalization regime continues to criminalize cannabis just like it did before. And that continues to hurt people and deny them their civil liberties, especially when cannabis is a safe so you, you can't So you and, you and your husband cannot operate um, any business that is associated with the sale the production and or sale of cannabis, right? Well, federally, you're not allowed to have a federal producing company to grow cannabis if you have a criminal record. Right. Here in British Columbia, the name Cannabis Culture is not even allowed on a legal store because it's associated with media and other businesses. And then I have to prove net worth and all these other enormous burdens and costs, which I don't have. I can't afford it. I'm a young female entrepreneur. And all of the people who wanted to build this industry, the disruptors, the entrepreneurs, the pioneers, why wouldn't the government just legalize us like they did with Uber and Airbnb? Those lawbreakers got regulated into existence. They didn't get demonized and arrested and still facing even more tough penalties. Okay, hold on. I want to come back to you, Jody. Don't go away. I want you to listen to two RCMP spokespersons, spokesmen, spokes officers. Got to get it right. Steve Bailey and uh, Brad Mueller. Here's what they had to say. The Cannabis Act, or Bill C-45, rep- represents a significant change in enforcement. But the people of Alberta can be assured of the same level of service delivery 
from their provincial police force. Drug impaired driving has been a crime in Canada since 1925 and the police have been responsible and used a number of investigative techniques to investigate it since that time. It's, it's not new to us. One of the concerns, of course, is driving high. And a study done earlier this year showed that there's a significant number of people who, after consuming cannabis, did in fact drive. Just have a listen to uh, the Prime Minister on Quebec changing the age of legal consumption of cannabis. We could be facilitating uh, a segment of market that would be only, therefore, served uh, by uh, by the uh, illegal um, illegal market, by the black market, by criminal organizations. So, apart from the fact I have no idea what he was talking about, uh, Jody Emery is back with us, cannabis um, proponent, and uh, with her husband Mark Emery. Everybody knows Jody and Mark Emery in this country. That doesn't sound like the guy who made uh, the simple commitment to legalize marijuana, did it? Oh, not at all. I mean, this is a bomb show, I'm calling it. <laughs> um, it's just a disaster. Very good. Because, again, it could have been so very simple, but I have a feeling Justin Trudeau was confronted with the reality of cannabis law enforcement budgets and that a lot of Canada depends on keeping cannabis and drugs criminalized. Um, but I have to commend those officers, though, about driving and about impaired driving, they're absolutely right. We already have the tools in place. We already have officers trained. You you don't need a whole new set of laws, Bill C-46. You don't need Canadian police being sent to Arizona for drug training in a place where civil liberties violations happen on the regular. We don't need to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars giving police tools that are proven to be inaccurate and faulty. Um, this is a red herring, the whole driving and cannabis situation. When I don't know. Cannabis, it's, it's a concern to many people. It is a concern. It's a real concern because you, yes, pe- think- you don't want people to be consuming uh, marijuana and then drive or, or doing it while they're driving. But they already are. And that's well, I know, you, I know they are, but they don't, still don't want them doing it, and you want but to be able not, to stop them from doing not, it. Right, but they're not actually causing problems. Impairment is well, proven by performance. Well, hold on, Roy, please. Let me explain that for 25 years, governments and researchers have been studying this, and you can find this online at my Twitter and everywhere. They find that THC is not connected to impaired crash increases. Um, cannabis, actually, when you have more access... People use less alcohol, and traffic fatalities yeah. go down. Jody, Jody I've heard the other side on this program as well. Maybe I'll initiate a debate at some point going forward. Now, what happens to you and Mark? What's going on with, with you two? Because you're facing those criminal charges, right? Well, we already pled guilty last December. So I accepted a guilty plea. Yeah. I agreed to a massive fine instead of jail time, and Mark did the same. So right now, he's basically retiring. I mean, Mark Emery has spent decades trying to campaign for legalization, and we find ourselves excluded from the legal regime. We find ourselves demonized. So what are, you both, what, are, what are you both going to do? Now, now it's going to be legalized, and it's going to be a staggering to the finish line. We know that. Uh, so so wh- wh- where, what would your involvement well, be? Am I legal, though? Am I legalized? No, I have a criminal record. I yeah. can't start these businesses. I can't even volunteer with children if I wanted to do summer camp like I used to. So you're, you're out. Yes, I am, and I'm trying to find my way in. So that's why my new coffee shop in Toronto is called Jody's Joint. It's a hemp-themed 
coffee shop. It wants to be like Amsterdam, but it's just selling coffee, which is legal. Mm -hmm. But I'm also working on trying to get cannabis culture legal. Next April marks 25 years since cannabis culture and Mark Emery began activism. That's a quarter of a century. I'm going to ensure that the history is not whitewashed that the facts of the movement are still preserved, and I'm doing everything I can and with Jody, and compliance I have to, to legal. I have to stop here because of the clock, but thank you so much for joining us today. You've always been terrific about coming on the air. Well, I appreciate the chance to talk, and let's get everybody liberated instead of continued criminalization. So thank you, Roy. Take care. Jody Hamry. I believe that the imbalances with China are a very serious problem. Um, as I say in the book, as you know, I'm an economist by training, and a lot of economists will say the fact that we have a deficit with China uh, doesn't matter, and no form of protectionism could possibly work. Um, look, those who say that trade deficits or trade surpluses don't matter and protectionism can never work forgot to tell the Chinese. Former Prime Minister Stephen Harper in conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, with the Ottawa Bureau Chief of Global News and with the West Block, which you will see tomorrow morning, At 11 a.m. across the country, and Mercedes obtained an exclusive first interview with Stephen Harper about his new book, Right Here, Right Now, Politics and Leadership in the Age of Disruption. And Mercedes Stevenson joins us on the Roy Green Show. Mercedes, thank you very much for taking the time, and uh, congratulations on on getting that interview. Thank you, Roy. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, How would you describe the mood and the attitude of the former prime minister today, these days, what did you what did you he encounter? Seems, uh, he seems more relaxed. He's a, a private citizen now, and I asked him about that. If uh, he, there's sort of an enjoyment of that anonymity, we were walking through the financial district, as you'll see on the show. We we went for a walk with cameras following us, and he's able to just basically walk around and be a normal person. He doesn't have all the security. Uh, certainly somewhere like Manhattan, not a lot of people recognize him. He said occasionally people will come up and say hello, uh, but he's sort of back to being Stephen Harper, who can sink his teeth into policy uh, and economics, which are two of the things that he loves, and no longer under, you know, that pressure that any prime minister faces day in, day out, where you basically start every day tired. Uh, it sounds like a great job, and he said it was the greatest job in the greatest country in the world, and he loved having it. But I think he's certainly enjoying uh, having his own life again. I love the title of the book right here, right now. Clearly, uh, I mean, it's clearly understood what he's saying. Politics and Leadership in the Age of Disruption. He spoke to you about the issue of populism, and that's such a such an all-encompassing issue globally now. What did he have to say? Well, he basically says that he thinks populism is a response to underlying economic and social conditions. So people losing their jobs, people seeing their wages decrease. Um, and that's why he actually thinks that it's not really a serious problem in Canada right now, where we have uh, a relatively good standard of living and we haven't seen that same sort of drop in wages that some areas in places like the United States or Britain have, for example. And he argues that populism in itself isn't necessarily dangerous, but if you don't do something about it, then it can become dangerous. And he's arguing that politicians of all stripes, not just on the left or on the right, uh, really need to listen to people. And in fact, he argues that he thinks both left-wing and right-wing governments have been very condescending in some cases to citizens. And that has driven that rage and that anger because he says, in his own words, uh, if citizens believe their government despises them, uh, they will look for someone from outside the system. And that's how you get somebody like a Donald Trump in office, in his theory, is that they're looking for someone who isn't the classic politician because they're frustrated with them. He also told you, did he not, that he is less concerned 
about Donald Trump than he is about uh, Jeremy Corbyn in the in the UK, for example. Yeah, he did. He said he's he's more worried by Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn than he is by Donald Trump, which I think would surprise a lot of people. Um, and I asked him, why why do you think left wing populists are more dangerous than right wing? Uh, and I guess unsurprisingly, from his conservative perspective, although to the surprise of a lot of other folks, uh, he says that it's because of the social and economic systems that left wing populists would support. He believes that is more dangerous. Although he did acknowledge that there are concerns about you know white nationalist and neo-nazi groups that are trying to insert themselves on the right-wing side of things i wouldn't say he necessarily likes donald trump uh, he treads very carefully around that as a former prime minister talking about a serving president but he does say there's things that essentially concern him there but he believes at the end of the day donald trump is trying to fix some of those underlying problems whereas he does not believe that about say a bernie sanders or a jeremy corbyn now there are two terms in this country that everybody has an instant opinion on one of them is carbon tax, the other is Trans Mountain. All you have to do is say carbon tax, Trans Mountain. You said that to uh, former Prime Minister Harper. How did he respond? Yeah, so on the carbon tax, um, I asked him if there's is, is there any such thing as a conservative carbon tax? Could you do that? And he insists no. Um, and, and he believes that it is uh, something that, that cannot win in elections. Uh, I guess Justin Trudeau probably has a different perspective on that because it's one of the things they ran on. But he believes that a carbon tax doesn't fix the problem. He believes it taxes essentially the, the wrong part of the market. Um, and it's not that he's advocating a complete free market because in other places in the book, he actually advocates for more market intervention, which was very surprising to me uh, to hear that from Stephen Harper because that wasn't always how he governed. Um, but he definitely does not like the carbon tax and does not think it has a place. Uh, he believes it will always fail. When it comes to Trans Mountain, uh, he thinks it's very important that that pipeline be built and that without it, you run the risk of more populism in Canada because that re uh, represents some of the key jobs uh, that he thinks are very important. So he's hoping that it will be built. Of course, his government hoped to build a lot of pipelines. They didn't have a lot of success with it, though. All right. So now Russia. What does he have to say about Russia? And we all remember that uh, that memorable meeting. Uh, there was a G7 meeting where he, uh, he said to Vladimir Putin, I guess I'll shake your hand but you have to get out of Ukraine now. What does he have to say about Russia? So I asked him if, if he's frustrated because you remember his position on Putin and everyone knew and he was very blatant about it. Um, and the same people who at the time criticized him for that are now sounding the alarm bells about the Russians being close to Donald Trump. And I said, is that is that kind of a frustrating thing to look back on? And he said, yes, uh, he actually thinks that he gave Vladimir Putin a chance when he first came into office. Um, he thinks that he proved pretty quickly that uh, essentially from his perspective, Putin is a bad guy doing bad things. And he doesn't understand why that hasn't been apparent to more people in the world until now. Uh, he continues to think that Putin is a bad guy doing bad things. Uh, and he's quite concerned about the role uh, of Russian influence around the world, uh, not just in places like Syria, uh, but also obviously when you talk about things like elections. And the, uh, the other massive nation uh, in, at play globally, and uh, which is increasing its presence and its, uh, and its force, significantly is China. Uh, what does he say about China and the relationship between uh, Canada and China? 
He warns that you have to be very careful from his perspective with trade with China. He really thinks China has a massive advantage, and he actually agrees with Donald Trump on this, that, that he thinks that the Chinese uh, have a command economy, that they have government-run businesses, they have protectionist items in place, that in some cases a, a lot of Canadian or American jobs have gone there, and he thinks that that actually has fed populism as well, because people get frustrated if cheap products uh, are flooding their market or their jobs are going abroad, particularly um, some of the lower skilled jobs, and that that's where he believes a lot of the populism is bubbling up from. So he warns that he thinks China really has taken advantage, and he's calling on Western countries to do more to kind of flank that. And what's interesting is, um, I asked him about the USMCA deal, aka NAFTA 2.0, and well, he doesn't think it's the best deal necessarily for Canada. He is a fan of the section that would prevent Canada, the United States, or Mexico from signing a trade agreement with China. He thinks that's the way it has to be, is sort of Western countries have to operate as a block on this. Mercedes, congratulations on uh, getting that interview. It's, it's important. I think Canadians probably increasingly are interested in what the former prime minister has to say now. We're one year out from the next federal election. Stephen Harper's new book, Right Here, Right Now, Politics and Leadership in the Age of Disruption. Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News. And you'll see her interview on the West Block on Global Television tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. Thanks, Mercedes. All the best. Thanks, Ryan. There's a new report that's been issued by Dr. Penelope Gerstein from the UBC School of Community and Regional Planning. She's uh, co-authored No Vacancy, And it's about rental housing shortages and uh, the price of rental properties, not only in Vancouver proper, but also expanding into Metro Vancouver with major challenges in communities like Surrey and New Westminster. Low-income families are being driven in some cases into homelessness, and that is an alarming, that's an alarming sentence. Dr. Gerstein, thank you very much for taking uh, the time. And can you put a price on affordable housing in Vancouver? If I wanted to rent a two-bedroom condo, or apartment in the city of Vancouver, would I find one? And if I would, how much choice would I find? And then finally, how much would I be expected to pay for such accommodation? Right. So, uh, so the uh, housing right now in Vancouver is uh, uh, it, it's uh, uh, for a two bedroom, it would be up to about twenty, I mean, over twenty four hundred or more. The vacancy rate is actually uh, close to zero, and um, uh, you know the likelihood of you trying to find something below that would be very very slim. So, and and what has happened in, from what we found in our our study because we had done a similar study in 2016 that was done by University of Victoria that I was involved in um, that the that the the uh, vacancy rates in um, the other communities like Surrey and Burnaby and New Westminster have really dropped significantly as well uh, as well as Vancouver. So it used to be that you could go if you couldn't if you couldn't find housing in Vancouver, you could go to one of these other communities. But that's that's not the case anymore. So even if you have the money, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to find the accommodation you want. Right. Yes. Uh, speak to us, please, about what happens to people who are on the lower socioeconomic scale. A family that uh, that is that is really just close to the poverty line, and now they they need a place to live. Some some people, some apartment buildings, uh, they're remodeling from the inside. They're making it difficult for tenants to to stay in those buildings while they're doing the remodeling. They're actually offering them money to leave. If they leave, here's a little bit of a bonus: a few thousand bucks if you leave. Uh, how? What's it like for a family that's on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale? 
Well, first of all, if you look at the study uh, in No Vacancy, what we did is we did several scenarios of looking at, for example, a single mother on uh, income uh, who's, who's working at minimum wage. And after uh, paying for rent and, and you know, other expenses, she would, uh, she would have about $4 left a month to actually. Uh, so, I mean, these people are very, very close to, being, uh, to, to, to not being able to find, uh, find a housing that would, be, that would fit their incomes. Uh, so this is, uh, this is happening not just with um, single-parent uh, uh, single families, but it's also families with, with, uh, uh, that, you know, with two partners who maybe are both working, but they're working at, at, low, uh, at low income wages. So it's, it's spread um, significantly. And it's, uh, uh, before we thought that homelessness was just you know, for people that, that had multiple barriers to, uh, through substance abuse, through mental health issues and everything, but that's not the case anymore. Shelters are finding that there are um, refugee families, uh, low-income families that are using their services. What about subsidized housing? How's that going? So the the BC government is really stepping up. I mean, they've they've really uh, introduced as much uh, a, a lot more ha- uh, housing options than they than the previous government did. Um, there's now two. They there were the BC government through BC Housing is now in the process of building two thousand uh, temporary modular units for people who are, who are homeless. Um, they're also uh, uh, increase the uh, uh, the funding for other kinds of, of more permanent housing. So they are trying to do that. But the right now the uh, registry for uh, for uh, for people who are seeking um, housing government housing is is gone up really significant. It's through the roof right now of people sort of seeking housing um, that is that is affordable. So if the situation has deteriorated significantly since 2016, and it appears it has, is there any hope, is there any suggestion that the trend may be reversing itself, or will you have a report in 2020 which is going to be even more dire? Well, we hope not. I mean, I, it really has to be uh, the three levels of government sort of stepping up and, and doing this, working with um, nonprofit housing associations, faith-based organizations, um, the private sector. Um, you know, the municipal governments, some municipal governments have uh, recognized that this is a significant issue, but not all. So they're going to have to be, you know, uh, providing land, uh, ensuring that the timely uh, permitting of, of uh, housing projects, and trying to retain um, existing affordable housing because that's really the most affordable, or the, or the is the housing that that was built, say in the in the 60s and 70s. That's the affordable rental housing right now. What took you by surprise? Well, what took me by surprise is I I really didn't think that that the uh, vacancy rate uh, was so low for the outlying communities. I I really thought. I knew how bad Vancouver was, but I didn't know how bad it was in in the in the other uh, communities. Where it, I I know that they were building uh, rental housing, so I thought that 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 would absorb some of the people who are looking for for affordable housing. So, um, but if you look at this, what what's happening is that there has been um, what you're talking about renovations where people are being. Um, uh, evicted um, so because landlords are renovating and then charging higher rents 
or they're tearing down existing affordable housing uh, stock and building condominiums, which are or, or maybe rental, uh, but they are much more expensive. So it's really not addressing um, the housing need for, for low-income families or even middle-class families. And Dr. Gerstein, uh, while Vancouver has been the pointy end of the stick for a long time on this issue of Vancouver proper, now it's Metro Vancouver, other communities in this country are probably facing similar situations. Yeah, I, I, I know they are. I mean, uh, it's it's not just in in uh, the lower mainland right now. It, there is, uh, it's in the rest of BC. And, I mean, I think Ontario is facing this, uh, these issues. And, uh, um, I, you know, I think um, Montreal is not so bad, but I think they are. I think, you know, what what is, is showing is, is that the, uh, the federal government has really overlooked um, uh, how, uh, sort of developing policies for this kind of, of housing. And so um, this, is, this is the consequences now. So we really need kind of really strong partnerships between the three levels of government to try to address these issues. Yeah, and we need to remember that the statistics are one thing, but behind the statistics are real people with real lives, some of them, many of them with real jobs. They just can't match the income to what's required as far as their rental properties are concerned. And as you pointed out, at the end of the month, if they if they are able to rent, they may be left with just a handful of dollars to get them through the rest of the 30 days, which is an impossibility. Dr. Gerstein, thank you very much for the time. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Penelope Gerstein from uh, UBC, from the School of Community and Regional Planning. Let's return to the issue of uh, federal legislation freeing marijuana purchases consumption and growing, and turning to Canada's doctors, let's turn to Canada's doctors, for their views, their concerns, and their support. Now, there's lots of confusion about what, in fact, is going to happen on Wednesday, four days from now. There's confusion in business. There's confusion. Well, there's confusion everywhere. And we spoke with uh, Jody Emery earlier on, and you heard Jody's perspective. Dr. Gigi Osler is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, the first female surgeon to be president of the CMA in 151 years. Congratulations, Dr. Osler, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Is Canada, from a health perspective, ready for legalized recreational marijuana use? And I'm thinking immediately about common health threats that go with ingesting smoke into lungs and the effect of smoking on the brain. When I ask, are we ready, I wonder if there's an immediate identifiable national health threat or is legalizing cannabis not likely to change anything much other than the supplier? You know, I, I think that is probably one of the most pertinent questions to be asking right now. Uh, because after October 17th, we're entering this new reality, and it's a reality where cannabis is legal. But legalization doesn't make it safe. Um, and we we still have concerns, you know, will usage rates go up? Uh, will we see more health problems? Will we see more social problems? Will health care costs go up? So there are still a lot of unanswered questions that uh, has us watching the situation uh, carefully uh, with a lot of considerate deliberation. So it's fair to say or fair to suggest 
They're not all the homework that should have been done went into this before in the time that was available. Oh, so, sorry, say that again? Not all the homework that should have been done went into this uh, legalization in the time that was available before Wednesday. Yeah, part of our um, messaging has always been that uh, before legalization occurs, the public needs more information and education about cannabis. It's going to be legal. So what do Canadians need to know about it to use it, if they choose to use it, how, how to use it safely? And there is information out there, but I think the question still remains, has it gotten into the hands of the average Canadian? What health effects of cannabis are going to be experienced? Let's start with short term. What do, what's, what's right out? What's out there? What's going to happen immediately? So I, I look at it in terms of uh, physical risks and then risks to mental health. And from a, a physical health risk, uh, there are concerns about dependence. Uh, there's concerns about worsening lung infections, particularly if somebody has an underlying chronic respiratory or lung problems, uh, have concerns about will, will women who are pregnant smoke because they've been told it's safe, um, there are no harms associated with using cannabis when in fact there uh, could be effects on the baby. And then if you look at the, the mental health risks, Certainly, there are concerns with uh, problems with thinking, memory, uh, coordination. Uh, there's possibilities of uh, impaired perceptions or hallucinations or psychosis. Um, and so the message that we're trying to get out to Canadians is to recognize that although this is going to be a legal substance, it has health risks associated with it, yeah. just like tobacco, just like alcohol. It would be really short-sighted not to, not to understand that. Um, I, I, was, I got into a bit of a debate with somebody a couple of weeks ago, and I said, why don't you just use common sense? Sucking smoke into your lungs is never going to be good for you. Mm -hmm. and, and it's and not going to help your brain. And then we also know that psychologically, uh, a person's not fully developed by the time they're 25, and if you compromise the brain's function, that's not going to help you along particularly well, is it? Well, you're absolutely right. And you know, some of the concerns are people who smoke cigarettes, so tobacco already. Now, if they start smoking a, a second inhaled substance, well, you are now smoking two different substances, both with uh, potential carcinogens in them. And then... I think we have to be particularly concerned with our youth because, as you said, brain development is not fully complete until 25. And with legalization ages across the country ranging from 18 to potentially 21 in Quebec, you will have youth under the age of 25 who are now using a substance which can impact their brain development and may lead to problems with um, thinking, memory, or higher functions. So 
we believe part of the message continues to be um, delay taking up cannabis use until later in life. Um, If you choose to use, use low-potency products. And if you choose to use, limit and reduce how often you use cannabis. Uh, because all of those factors are particularly important on the developing brain. Dr. Osler, there, there continues to be uh, talk about and support for cannabis in treating various health conditions, from epilepsy to, in some cases, assisting with chronic pain issues. What's the potential and what are the real health benefits of cannabis applied in that manner, um, you know, applied specifically to deal with health conditions? It's, it's, and I'm thinking about cannabis oil. We had a father on about two years ago, and his, little, his daughter, three years of age, had significant epilepsy issues. She had up to 100 seizures a day. He gave her um, cannabis oil, wasn't supposed to, but he did, and she never had another seizure. So what's the, what's the potential medical upside to, uh, to marijuana? There's been a lot of talk about uh, medical cannabis versus recreational cannabis. And the two have different active compounds. And so one interesting thing about legalization in Canada is that it will open up more research opportunities looking at the potential benefits of cannabis for a variety of different medical problems. Uh, Right now, there is research that's poten- that has great potential in showing benefits, uh, but there needs to be more of the same sort of high-quality research that's needed for, say, prescription drugs. Uh, because right now, there isn't enough of that high-quality research to really be able to tell uh, which compounds work best for which condition, dosing, potential interaction with medications and long-term health risks. So that's one silver lining for uh, post-legalization is uh, more research coming, uh, being done in the country, looking at the potential benefits. Because right now it's it's still a little too early to tell. Okay. Let me come back to something you said earlier, and that is, or you, you, you touched on earlier, and that is smoking marijuana, consuming marijuana, during pregnancy and breastfeeding, if there, if the story's out there that it's really not like tobacco, that it's really not going to cause a problem, that couldn't be further from the truth, right? Well, I mean, you mentioned tobacco. Look at smoking and pregnancy. We know there are risks to the unborn baby uh, when moms smoke in pregnancy. And so right now... Uh, All all medical advice, Canada has some guidelines for cannabis use called Canada's Lower Risk Guidelines. Um, They and we are all advising um, not to use cannabis when pregnant um, because it could harm the unborn baby. And there are doctors who will not, family doctors, we know in this country, there have been cases where family doctors have said, if you smoke, we're not going to treat you anymore because you're causing such uh, a health crisis for yourself, there's no point in us providing a service. I know that that's been criticized severely by other physicians, but that's happened. And I wonder if that's going to extend uh, to, to people who now suddenly say, well, I'm enjoying a joint now and then because I live in a stressful environment and it relaxes me. 
Well, certainly once it is legalized, um, it will be looked upon like tobacco, like alcohol. So I'm encouraging patients to talk to their doctors in uh, an open manner, simply because right now we don't know a lot about the potential interactions with cannabis and medications someone may be on. We don't know a lot about potential side effects uh, of cannabis with other health conditions. And so I think once it becomes legal, we as the medical profession need to look at it uh, like tobacco, like alcohol. It's one of those substances we need to know if you're on so that we can help you make informed decisions about whether it is uh, good for your health for you to continue using it. And so that's my hope post-legalization. So maybe a case of, uh, of agenda overriding common sense and, and, and research this legalizing. Four days from now is when it all begins. Dr. Olsler, thank you very much for spending the time with us. Greatly appreciated. That's my pleasure. And, and can I add one more thing to sure. the listeners? Yeah. Um, I, I want your listeners to, to really uh, not, if they choose to use, um, don't use and drive. Uh, because driving under the influence of cannabis um, can increase your risk of being involved in a motor vehicle accident uh, with injury or death. And there's no standard time after using that it's recommended to drive. So I think if someone is in particular using and they're using for the first time or they're not sure how it's going to affect them, it is probably safest for them and everybody on the road uh, if they avoid using and driving. Well, thank you for saying that because I don't want to be out on the road with somebody who has just uh, um, consumed uh, cannabis and is none too steady, even though there are people who argue that you're a better driver. I doubt that sincerely, but uh, I don't want to be out on the road with them either. Thank you, Dr. Rosler. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Gigi Osler, the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 